Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Slate Political Gap Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 50% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by Points of Courage, a new business podcast from Hiscox about courage. Get Points of Courage wherever you find your podcasts and learn more about what Hiscox can do for your business by going to Hiscox.com. That's H-I-S-C-O-X dot com. Hiscox. Encourage courage. And by Texture, the mobile app that gives you full access to more than 150 of the world's most popular magazines anytime using your phone or tablet. Read Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and hundreds more, from back issues to the one currently on the newsstand. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com slash political. Do you feel like you can't keep up with all the amazing new audio programming during this golden age of podcasting? Do you wish your commute was half an hour longer? Are you tired of having to choose between the political and the culture gabfests? Hi, I'm Gabriel Roth, the editorial director of Slate's membership program, Slate Plus. I'm also the host of the Best of Slate Podcasts, a weekly audio digest for Slate Plus members. In each episode, we pick the best segments from the political gabfest, the culture gabfest, and all of your favorite Slate podcasts, then combine them into a single must-listen super podcast. To listen to the best of Slate podcasts and to learn more about all the podcast benefits that come with Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash best of Slate podcasts. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for June 2nd, 2016, the Is Trump the Gorilla and America the Kid edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Joining me this week is not John Dickerson. John Dickerson, the nation faced him and he was terrified and ran away. I don't know where John is. Um, so we'll, we'll just have to soldier on without him. But He'll be back. Let's just be slightly reassured. Yes, he will be back. That is, of course, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine joining us from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And uh, subbing for John, but... In all senses, uh, his equal, his match, his superior, possibly, is Adam Davidson, the economics columnist of the New York Times Magazine, the host of the surprisingly awesome podcast, frequent GabFest uh, visitor. Hello, Adam. Thanks for thanks for being with us today. Hey, David and Emily. It's great to join you. But I am in no way John Dickerson. Oh, David always equal. has to set it up that way. I always and, make and it sort of a competition. Various yeah, it's right. It's awful. It's right. It's true. I am way superior to uh, you. That is, that is, there's no doubt that. about that. There's absolutely no doubt about your superiority to me. On this week's GabFest, poor Hillary Clinton. Why don't Democrats appreciate her? Can she survive a defeat in California in the California primary next week? Then President Obama proposed a new rule for overtime pay and media companies, among others, are shuddering. Is it a good rule or a bad rule? Adam, see that on that issue, Adam, you're somebody we want to hear from more than yeah, I more can than handle that John. 
That one I feel good about. In fact, thank God you're here. Thank God. (laughs) And then who is to blame for the tragic death of a gorilla at the Cincinnati Zoo? Uh, We will decide who's to blame. We'll blame somebody. And we'll have cocktail chatter in which I will reveal an embarrassing secret. And in Slate Plus, what is the right response to this horrific presidential campaign, to a presidential campaign of that's embarrassing and dangerous and horrible? Should you fight it out with all your heart or should you retreat and avoid the horror of it? We'll discuss strategies for coping. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Do not forget that we have a live show coming up July 13th, 2016. Of course, it's 2016. What other year would it be? July 13th at 7 p.m. at the Warner Theater here in Washington, D.C. Slate.com slash live for tickets. It's going to be great. It's our first live show in D.C. in a long time. It's going to be in the heart of the the election campaign right leading up to the conventions. It's going to be amazing. So join us at the Warner Theater, July 13th, Slate.com slash live. Next week, Hillary Clinton will quite possibly lose the California Democratic primary to Bernie Sanders, but will clinch the nomination that night all the same. Uh, Clinton will limp into the convention, the convention buildup period with certainly many more votes won than Sanders and more delegates won than Sanders, but a string of embarrassing losses and a confounded campaign. She faces a polling numbers that are depressing for those of us who worry about the prospect of a Donald Trump presidency, she is, she is not ahead of Trump in the way that Democrats hoped she would be. The Sanders supporters appear to be more and more alienated from her rather than reconciling themselves to her. A New York Magazine profile this week, a very sympathetic New York Magazine profile, depicted her as the older, wiser General Leia of the latest Star Wars movie, calmer but scarred and and facing a really dangerous a dangerous battlefield. So, Emily, has she actually won the nomination? Is that basically wrapped up, or, or is there still ambiguity about that? Isn't she still 3 million votes ahead? I mean, I think, yes, we need to wait for the results in California. Of course, it would be better for Clinton if she edges out Sanders in the end. But, yeah, according to the rules and according to the majority of voters, she's going to win. And what is the evidence, Adam, about whether Sanders voters will coalesce behind her? The polling I've seen suggests that about 70 percent of them say they will and that when they do, her overall poll numbers against Trump will presumably recover. But but is there reason for for the Clinton campaign to be terrified that the Sanders voters will will stay away? No, there really isn't. I mean, it, it could be a small percentage and in this election, a small percentage could make a difference. But. The electorate in America, and we've known this for, you know, as long as there's been serious polling since 1948 or 52, depending on when you consider serious polling starting, is the people who vote are a very solid block. I mean, there's a solid block of Democrats. There's a solid block of Republicans. And even the people who call themselves independents are really either Democrats or Republicans. There's such a small number of truly up for grabs, undecided people. So I would say, no matter what people say, we know that come election day, people who look like Sanders supporters vote Democratic. Now, if if she doesn't have the enthusiasm and turnout is just a little bit less than we want that. And yes, I say we want because I am fully against Donald Trump being president. So I am saying, yes, we want um, Hillary to win. Um, 
then it's it's possible that 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 could be an issue. But the the idea that thirty percent of Bernie Sanders supporters are actually on that Tuesday in November not gonna hit their chat or whatever for Hillary Clinton is just not true. They're performing a protest by saying that to pollsters, but it's not a real why, prediction. Why of is behave. it that she does so poorly, at least now? I mean, I think you're probably right, Adam, that the, all these people have reconciled, but among progressives and young voters, you know, certainly Sanders, there's a, there's a, a kind of idealism to Sanders, which there isn't to Clinton and young, young people and progressives are probably more idealistic, but it's amazing how badly she does and how she does even worse than you would expect given the circumstances. And I'm, I'm continue to be kind of baffled by that. Do you guys have an explanation for why she just can't get any traction with progressives and, and with young people? Well, right now, her history is playing as a problem and a bunch of baggage as opposed to an asset. So instead of getting credit for experience and all the, you know, thoughtful policymaking and expertise and mastery, she's getting banged up for, you know, supposedly the way she colluded in covering up or at least minimizing Bill Clinton's infidelities slash, you know, alleged sexual assaults. And then there's like all the other like old scandals we talked about last week and and then you know more substantive things like the clinton era crime bill and the things she said then so there there are just things from the 90s that don't play well now but i also think there is just this difference in approach and style and aesthetics Um, my 16 year old has been following her instagram feed and most of the time he finds it irritating it's like kind of bland and um, sunny in a way that seems empty to him. And it it's sort of Reagan-esque, right? I mean, morning in America, like things are going to be great, but there's something about it that doesn't fit that medium. And then the other day she posed, or not she, but someone from her campaign did a much more clever video. Did you guys see this of her? Like there were a couple of guys without shirts in the audience at one of her um, speeches and she was funny in dealing with them it was like off the cuff it was kind of grandmother like but in a way that seemed like real and he really liked that video and i thought all right well maybe they can get the hang of like how to communicate with that generation but isn't there the possibility that there's just a whole lot of screaming and yelling but there isn't fundamentally a drama that that what's happening is we have one candidate who is going to win the presidency, Hillary Clinton, that she was never going to maintain a double-digit lead over the Republicans simply because of structural factors in electoral politics. But we're all jumping around, screaming, freaking out. And what's really happening is one person was going to win the Democratic primary from the beginning. She didn't do quite as well as we expected, or maybe a lot less well than we expected, but that's okay. And then by... September, we're not even going to really remember who this Bernie Sanders guy is. Just like right now, Ted Cruz doesn't seem to be an important or interesting character in our lives. I think think you're right. It's just that we don't know for sure, right? I mean, other things could happen. She could screw up in bigger ways. She could get indicted. She could make a really lame vice presidential choice. I don't know. What do you think, David? Right. No, I think your your point is right, Adam. There's a huge amount of time between July and November. Four months, in fact. Exactly. Exactly. Four months between July and November. <laughs> and that's a vast gulf of time. And I think you're absolutely right that, that there, and there'll be the Olympics intervening, uh, the conventions, which will be uh, coronation for her. And, and she'll, she'll uh, 
she'll emerge as the Tribune, as the single spokesperson for the Democratic Party. And I think you're you are right to kind of call a halt on the, the panic. I do find it um, troubling. I mean, maybe it goes back to this question of how angry are American voters? Are American voters really as angry as the Donald Trump candidacy suggests they are and the Bernie Sanders candidacy suggests they are, in which case election day might actually be different than than the historic foundational numbers suggest if Americans really are as as whacked out as they seem to be? Or is this just all Michigas that I will... I don't actually think it's anger so much as a sense of despondency. I mean, when you look at the polls of how many people think the American dream is suffering or their kids' lives won't be as good as their lives or their parents' lives, those are the people who you know, could be in play. I mean, Adam's totally right. The, the, it's really a sliver of the electorate that is really in play. But when you look at those numbers, it does make me wonder whether Clinton's message is, you know, forceful enough for those people. Though Some of them have been drawn to Sanders, right? Because he speaks in simpler, starker terms about what's wrong with America. And she has been relatively unwilling to do that. It's just not her style. She's the establishment candidate. But she's, I think, has to do a better job of making because those, you know, the polls about how many people think that Hillary Clinton understands their problems and their lives. Her numbers are surprisingly low on that front. Yeah. I mean, shockingly, when you ask voters, you know, understands my will, will fight for me, these kinds of things. I mean, Trump scores way higher than I think he should. I mean, it, it's, it, it, it makes absolutely no sense that anybody at all would look at this man and think he fights for people like me. I, for a column I'm writing, I interviewed a bunch of billionaire real estate moguls and those types of people who are supporting Trump, but he doesn't even fight for them. Like, he, he's fully fighting for himself. So it, it is bizarre. It is, it is confusing. And, the, and if, if our test is... Are you successfully getting on the news a lot and making people feel all excited and worked up? Hillary is clearly failing. I still, like, I'm still going to be a fundamentalist on this and say the economy is doing better. The fundamental drivers of every election are pointed in the Hillary direction. I am nervous, as I was talking to someone, a political person the other day, and said, She's going to win, right? And they said, yeah, 90% she's going to win. But what if there was a 10% chance that there's a nuclear war in November? <laughs> like you, That 10% chance is pretty, pretty terrifying. And I agree with that. It is really, really terrifying. But I think it's kind of like, you know, like uh, Obama-McCain or Obama-Romney. The media acts as if it's a 50.1, 49.9 fight. And it's really a... 5347 fight or something like that. Meaning, yes, there are a whole bunch of long tail outside likelihood events that could derail her candidacy, and that's scary. But basically, what we're talking about is Hillary's going to walk into the presidency, and for a whole bunch of institutional reasons, people like us, people like TV news people, we have to pretend but it's a closer fight it than all, it is. It's not at all like the Romney or McCain fight in the sense that the second choice in the Romney and McCain uh, races. In the case of Romney, the second choice was a perfectly, acceptably smart, decent person. And the McCain one, McCain's temperament and his vice presidential choice were slightly more dangerous. But, he, you know, he was he was very much in the, I n understand how the political system works and I want to protect what's best of it. The, the thing that has people in a, a twirl is that that 10% 
doesn't mean a 10% chance of just your regular run-of-the-mill conservative president. It means a 10% chance of something historically catastrophic to America. And so I think it's it's reasonable to worry about that 10% in a way that you didn't worry about it when it might have been McCain or might have been Romney. I totally agree with that. Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. And I think, you know, if someone came to me and said, if you did X, Y, and Z, it could move, change the election, I would seriously consider giving up my job, you know, just focusing on that 100%. I think preventing even a 10% chance of Donald Trump becoming president is worth my entire life's work. That is a huge, huge thing. And it's worth many other people's entire life's work. I think it's the greatest risk to American democracy in a very, very long time. I mean, since the Civil War. I don't ever? know when you want to start <laughs> no, counting. But probably since the Civil War. Maybe I think ever. It's since yeah. the Civil War. Maybe, 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 maybe since the Depression. Yeah. Not, I'm not, I don't I know enough of that history. The, I, one thing, I, can we go to the, the New York Magazine profile of Hillary, which I was a very nice piece. Yeah, um, really good. And one thing that I, that I always love about Hillary Clinton is that I basically am somebody who believes that you get up, you go to work, you do something small, you do something small again tomorrow, and then you do something small again the day after that, and then after a month, you've accomplished something, and then after you know a year, you've accomplished a lot more, and that, that kind of incremental, we're just going to try and work and diligently do your job day after day, and that came across very much in this, in this profile of just her as a, somebody who likes to work. Why is that so, so uninteresting to so many people? Why does that not matter to anybody except me, apparently? Well, I think Rebecca Traster, the writer's thesis, is that it's harder to see that. And then she ends on this interesting note, and I want to ask you guys what you think. She ends with this question about whether the political ideal of charisma right now is a male image in a way that is causing trouble for Hillary in itself. Because, I mean, there's a way in which her, like, hardworking, busy beaver persona seems like, you know, the girl in election um, who is doing everything by the book, but just isn't as inspiring or appealing as some guy who kind of swoops in from the outside. Do you think there's something gendered about this or is that overreaching? Oh, my God. Do you think if we went back and watched election today, you would root for Tracy Flick? Do you think it? Do you think it, it's one of these movies? I have done that recently, and it's actually a little heartbreaking to watch that movie and think about all of these questions. Because yeah, you do kind of root for Tracy Flick, and and it, the movie plays weirdly now. I think that would be a great. Someone should do that as a piece because it is because we who gives a fuck about charisma right now? Anyway, obviously people give a fuck about it, but. <laughs> I mean, I, I will say, and here, here has been my sort of mouth agape, I can't believe it mistake that I see Hillary making, which is, I think there's a real argument to be made that a center-left, you know, market-friendly but strong muscular role for government policy could make America great again, that, that we are in a fundamentally new economy, that that new economy is benefiting the very rich much more than anybody else, but that there are tweaks in law, tweaks in incentives for corporations, te- tweaks in the tax code, etc., exactly the Hillary Clinton type of stuff that could really mean rising prosperity and shared prosperity for all Americans. There is a you know, shining city on the hill moment. There is a bridge to the 21st century moment. And 
I think she does have the policy wonkery of that, but she doesn't have the phrasing of it. And I believe in us working together or whatever that lame slogan was. Like, And that's the one I don't get, why she's not able to just say, you want to make America great again? I'm going to make America great again. I'm going to make an America where there is growing prosperity, where companies thrive, but their workers thrive. We've had it before. We can have it again. And I'm going to bring it to you. I will say that while I really do like her economic team, I know a lot of them, they're the only economic team that exists right now in any presidential campaign. They're not the kind of made-up ad hoc group that surrounds Bernie and Trump. Um, but they don't, that's not where they come from either. They're more like serious, sober, academic-minded policy people. And I, I want a little bit of that Frank Luntz magic to just come up with the phrase, but make us believe that you have something forward-looking, something exciting. Let us hear from our first sponsor this week, which is Stamps.com. How great would it be if the post office were open 24-7, no more limited hours, you could get your mailing and shipping done on your schedule? Now you can when you use Stamps.com. Print postage whenever you need it, right from your desk. Stamps.com will save you the time and hassle of going to the post office, no more rushing there during your busy day. And you can use your own computer and printer to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then your mail carrier will pick it up. You'll save money with Stamps.com, too. You get exact postage the instant you need it. No more overpaying. You even get discounts you can't find at the post office. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use promo code GABFEST for a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Thank God Adam Davidson is here because President Obama announced a new overtime initiative. Basically, and Adam will now correct whatever I say after this colon, basically, employees who are classified as professional and managerial and make less than $47,000 a year as salaried employees will now be eligible for time and a half overtime. He can impose this. Why? I don't really get it. But Adam, explain this rule and why the president can impose it and who's going to benefit from it if it goes through. The Fair Labor Standards Act, David. Yeah. So basically, in America, if you have a job, you're supposed to get paid overtime. You're supposed to be paid more if you work more than 40 hours a week. I mean, most people get paid by the hour, like a lot of union workers, etc., do get overtime once the time clock hits 40 hours. But then companies said, well, wait a second, we have all these managers and, and they're on like big salaries and the salaries pay them to just do their job. It's not, we're not counting their hours. We just want them to be a manager doing their job. So we don't want to have to pay them overtime. We'll just negotiate that in the annual or whatever contract over their salary. And the government a long time ago, said, okay, fine, but we think you're going to lie and say that a whole bunch of people are managers who aren't really managers. If people only make around $24,000 a year or less, even if you call them managers, you still have to pay them overtime. And so th that amount has not been, the level has not kept up in it with inflation over the last 40 years. So we now have a kind of one-time hurtling upwards to $46,000 a year. So the the good side of it is if you're that fry cook 
that makes $35,000 a year, I'm guessing fry cooks generally don't make $35,000 a year, but just using that example, even if your boss wants to call you the manager of the lobster shift fry cook operation, you still have to be paid overtime if your boss schedules you more than 40 hours a week. Adam, what is the what does economics tell us that the behavior of employers will be? What are the range of things that they will likely do to respond to this? So there's a whole bunch of short-term things which I think do hurt workers. So so I mean just think about it. If you had a staff of 10 and they were working for you and they were all making $35,000 a year and you were scheduling them so their average work time was 50 hours a week, so 10 hours a week each overtime, and, and you were struck with this new rule, you would instantly say, well, boy, I'm my payroll is 350000 a year. I really can't go much above that because my margins aren't that big. So I'm just going to hire three more people, and all of them will just stay working 40 hours a week. I'm not sure I did the math exactly right. I'm not sure if it's three people or – anyway. Now, is that good because it means now 13 people have jobs instead of 10? Or is it bad because those 10 might make a little less? Those are trade-offs. This is a classic case where economics doesn't give firm answers. It just – helps you view the trade-offs. So for the people who support this wholeheartedly, they have an image of how the economy works, which basically goes like this. There's a certain amount of profit that happens in an economy, and that profit is divided among capital, meaning the people who own the factories, which is actual factory owners, but also all of us with pension, you know, stocks and equities and 401ks, managers and workers. And what they would say is over the last 50 years, the share that workers get has shrunk dramatically and the share that capital gets has grown enormously and the share that the very top managers get has grown too. And the solution to this problem, and this is very much a Bernie Sanders view, this is a Economic Policy Institute view. Um, this is kind of gets at the Elizabeth Warren shift that I think she's making, but I'm not sure she's making. Um, but but a, a part of the Elizabeth Warren view that the reason workers are getting less is because it was stolen by the rich people. They stole it from them by changing labor laws, by not allowing labor practices to keep up with inflation. So anything we can do to steal some of it back, or not steal it back, but just get it back, is good for workers. That is a view that I have a lot of sympathy for. There's another view, which is that the entire economy works very, very differently now because of global trade, because of rapid technology, et cetera, things we hear about all the time. The way you thrive in this economy is no longer having a job with a set series of characteristics, but it's by acquiring skills and acquiring individual bargaining power. So if you think of like 1950s, strong unions, big factories, today the argument would be we have to each of us develop our own strengths. And I think for sure that is true for, say, the top 20% of earners in America. You know, for you and me, for journalists, for doctors, for lawyers, for um, graphic designers, for web designers, for people who have a BA from a reasonably good college, that is true. I would just assert that that is true. You need to develop your own set of skills, and that is how you will make more money, barring some, you know, Sanders-like revolution, which I think is not happening. The question is, what about people lower down, people who who are likely to earn $30,000 a year, even in their peak earning year, who 
only have a high school degree, who don't have any kind of advanced degree, what is the theory? How do we get them more money? Because getting them to college, getting them to university, that's a tough one. That, that, we have, that system has broken. We really, for 30 years now, have not gotten better at getting people whose parents didn't go to college to finish college. We get them into college, but then they get debt and they drop out. It's a, it's a really sad situation. So I would say this law points to a reality in America that is depressing, and maybe right now it's worth doing, even though it will hurt many poor workers. But it is a depressing long-term view because it's kind of saying we don't have a theory. We don't have a way as a country to think about the 80 million Americans who only have a high school degree or less, how to get them to earn more in a workplace by having more bargaining power through their skills. Isn't there another way to think about this, which is that the government is trying to do some of what unions used to do and that while the individualistic model you just put forward for more elite workers may succeed for them, there are a lot of people for whom collective bargaining was an enormous asset. And that kind of piece of the puzzle is basically gone missing, or at least has much less power than it used to. And so we need regulations like this to kind of step in where the unions used to have more clout. But isn't isn't Adam's point that the reason unions have lost that clout and the reason the reason it's problematic is that the global economy has has made those kind of rules and that kind of protections much harder to stick to and much harder to to make successful given these companies are competing against Thailand. Yeah, and and this is I mean this is the central sort of center left progressive left debate in economics right now, I would say, and I am a partisan, I'd say I'm a 70% center-left or 30% progressive-lefter on this. I think big factors that no government, no company could control are, are the main cause for wage stagnation and rising inequality. I would say that's a view of a majority of economists, but not all. But there are very powerful and very smart spokespeople for the progressive-left view, which is, no, yes, trade and technology change things, but trade and technology always changes things. And this money was stolen by a concerted effort by a small group of fanatic, right-wing, self-interested people. So, you know, Emily, your your friend and neighbor, Jacob Hacker, would be, you know, probably wrote, the, has written the definitive work on this, Economic Policy Institute. There, there's places that really make a very compelling case. I used to be 100% the center-left view, and I think those guys have shifted me over to, to be a 70% center-left person. The center-left view is... Um, this wasn't Ronald Reagan's fault. This wasn't Larry Summers' fault. This this was the result of massive global changes. We see the same phenomena in every country, including the Nordic countries that Bernie Sanders holds up. And that tells us this is a global phenomenon. It actually started first and was more intense in Germany and some of the Nordic countries. So it suggests government policy isn't the answer for why it happened or or a solution. That being said, government can still play a very strong role in making sure that prosperity is shared. And it's also not to say that there wasn't some big impact by Ronald Reagan and other kind of pro-market, anti-labor movements. So because I'm really interested in myself, I want to talk about the whining that you hear a lot coming out of media companies about this proposed new rule. They're saying their low-wage employment, the jobs that they're offering to interns and associate editors and and assistants, 
at their fancy schmancy uh, media companies, which are paying $37,000 or $42,000. Those are different. These people uh, should not be subject to the same kind of regulations that the fry cook, that Adam's putative fry cook should be subject to. Only those people over in retail and service need to get that overtime. Whereas, whereas in our low margin media businesses, this kind of low wage apprenticeship with terrible hours and terrible working conditions is, is a necessary condition of success in the industry. And we, we shouldn't have to pay our people time and a half in the way that and it will also it will also take something which is a which is a personal relationship where you're allowed to exploit people because they you're developing a personal relationship and it's going to make it very transactional and everyone's going to have to clock in and out. So is there any defense, Emily, which says, oh, yes, this can be applied to those those service workers, those people over at Starbucks, but not to my media company? I mean, I think it's the defense that Adam gave, which is that you are better off if you're a 20-something who wants to go into this low-margin but, you know, creative field allowing yourself to be exploited. Like, you better go ahead and exploit yourself. And, you know, I, I don't have any sympathy from the point of view of the companies because obviously they're getting something for free and there's something gross about that and the whining is just really unappealing. But I have to say, when I'm talking to young people and they ask me, how to get ahead. I I have said things that basically endorse this by suggesting like, well, sometimes if you have a job that isn't a writing job, but you want to be a writer, then you have to like do the writing around the edges or stay late or not think about your hours as determining how you spend all your time. And I also think that how we all work in this industry is super confusing. Jordan Weissman was writing about this for Slate. Like if you're on Twitter, if you're reading stuff that's kind of semi-related to your beat? Is that work or is that goofing off? I don't know. Well, maybe I'll just speak for myself. I don't work in a super linear fashion every day by any means. And if I had to clock in and out or keep track of my billable hours, I don't know what I would do precisely. We are in a massive transformation of how work happens, how money is made by individuals in an economy. And it's a huge transformation that's going to take generations to absorb. I mean, it's, it's to my mind and to many others' mind, it's, you know, it's like going from an agrarian economy where the primary factors in your life are the weather and very local conditions to an industrial economy. So my hunch is we'll still be figuring this out, you know, 20, 30 years from now. The ideas that I think are really promising, and uh, Reid Hoffman, who founded LinkedIn, writes about this with Ben Kasnoka in his book, The Alliance. Zainab Tan writes about it in a different way in her wonderful book, The Good Job Strategy. The things that I think are really promising are being just more explicit about the relationship between employee and employer or trainee and trainer that if someone comes to me and they're 22 and they say, I want to be an economics reporter with my own voice— I would not say to them, then you better go get a job and fight as hard as you can for the maximum legal salary and get overtime pay. I would say to them, find someone you love, someone you admire, and spend time with them and learn from them and practice and make mistakes. And don't worry too much about money. I mean, you know, worry enough to, to make a living, but between 23 and 28, something like that is an apprenticeship period. And we used to take apprenticeship very seriously in this country a very long time ago. In Germany, they still do. And I think there are all sorts of great models out there for how to have this conversation with the Condé Nast intern, with the Slate intern, whatever, where it's very explicit. Here's what you're getting out of the deal. Here's what we're getting out of the deal. 
here's what the long-term benefits are. And then if, if all you're doing is getting coffee for somebody and making less than minimum wage, then you can have a conversation. Hey, I am not learning the things you told me. Um, so I, I think that's an option that's available for the top 10%, top 20%. The bottom, that's a much harder thing, but Zainab Tan, the this MIT operations teacher, is one of many who, who shows a way that if we really challenge Walmart and others about how they think about labor costs, it actually might be so stupid how they're thinking about it that they're actually costing themselves money as well as us as a country, that it might turn out that in the right conditions, not just forcing companies to pay people more, but forcing them to understand how to pay them more and justify that expense, we can actually have greater growth and higher wages and more shared prosperity. So I, I can't, I don't want to promise a, a panacea or be Pollyanna, but, but I do think it's time for a major national conversation. And this is not that. This is more of a stopgap, hey, stop screwing over your, your, your workers. Now let's hear from our next sponsor this week, which is Hiscox. Starting a business takes guts. Many entrepreneurs risk big for rewards that aren't guaranteed. Here's some of their stories on the new podcast, Points of Courage, brought to you by Hiscox. This series captures conversations about the moments that encourage making the leap to start a business and how to approach the challenges that come with it. Hosted by Jessica Jackley, author, public speaker, and co-founder of Kiva.org, the world's first crowdfunded microlender, Points of Courage is a powerful resource for active and aspiring entrepreneurs, business owners, and anyone who believes nothing great is achieved without risk. Get an intimate look into the realities and rewards of running a business in America. Subscribe to Points of Courage wherever you get your podcasts and learn more about what Hiscox can do for your business by going to Hiscox.com. That's H-I-S-C-O-X.com. Hiscox. Encourage courage. Harambe, a 17-year-old male gorilla, was shot and killed at the Cincinnati Zoo to protect a three-year-old boy who had gotten inside the gorilla enclosure. Harambe, when the boy got into the enclosure, alternately seemed to be protecting and then endangering the child and certainly grew agitated as the crowd of zoo visitors. This was in contrast to a couple of other earlier incidents at other zoos where children had gotten into enclosures and gorillas had protected the children who'd gotten into enclosures. And the video that circulated of Harambe with the boy is really terrifying to any parent. I, it's sad and terrifying. The zoo officials having seen what was going on with the boy and having not a, a great method for getting the gorilla away from the boy, decided to kill the gorilla. And that was the only way to ensure that the child was protected. There has been an absolutely vicious response toward both the zoo and the family for the killing of the gorilla, that mostly aimed at the parents of the, the child, the mother of the child who, who got into the enclosure. People have called for charges, child endangerment charges against the mother. The zoo has been condemned for not adequately securing an enclosure, even though for 38 years no one else had managed to get into it. It's a really tough, tough case because... I think we all, it was an outcome that clearly nobody wanted. And yet, as I look at it, it seems to have been the, probably the outcome that was required. So Emily, first of all, did the zoo do the right thing in killing the gorilla? I don't think the zoo had a whole lot of choice. And this is just such a sad situation all around. I keep thinking how terrible it must have been for these zookeepers who I'm sure loved this gorilla and were just 
it must have just been devastating to have to do this. But if the child had died, I can't imagine people wouldn't be also very angry with the zoo. And what I mostly just feel in these moments is that I get so despairing about all of the outrage and the idea that instead of expressing emotions that recognize that there were really hard choices to be made and people are just struggling to do the right thing, everyone on the internet just gets so mad and wants to I mean, bring in criminal charges against this mom. How I, I guess I just feel like, look, my kids, thank God, have never done anything like this. And maybe that's because I've been a decent parent. But I don't know. It's probably because I was really lucky all the times I wasn't totally paying attention. I was not very good at the constant level of paying attention that is really required to keep toddlers and preschoolers safe. I don't know. I just wish that the response could have more sympathy and empathy in it and less rage. I got to say, I I decided to sit this one out. I like vaguely knew there was some gorilla thing going on. And I was like, I'll sit this one out. But then you guys told me I had to talk about it. So I actually came across the change.org petition asking for the mom to be criminally investigated. And, and there was something about the way it was written where I was like, oh, it's a black mom. And I just knew that from how the change.org, how it was placing this in, in this criminality and neglect narrative. And then when I saw the video and saw and saw the boy and realized it was an African American family, it it made me sick to my stomach that um that cuz I I mean I don't know, you always get to say this stuff, oh it wouldn't have happened. But, you know, this was the same day or the day before, you know, there's this UCLA shooting that shuts down all of Los Angeles and is major national news and all that kind of stuff. And and I just don't think it would be a narrative if it was Middle-class white parents. That's an easy thing to say. We don't have the counterfactual, but that's what I think. Um, Also, I have a four-year-old. He is an unbelievably timid, non-adventurous four-year-old. And he is constantly trying to kill himself. You know, he's constantly doing crazy stuff. And I have nieces and nephews who, it's a miracle they survive toddlerhood. And, And so... Come on, give people a friggin' break. Like, you know, I, I hope this provokes a conversation about zoo design. I don't want to blame the zoo, but clearly you shouldn't have a system that's so easily circumvented by a toddler, especially if your whole job is having dangerous animals next to toddlers. But blaming the mom with so little information is, yeah, gross. I bet when the forensic of this are done, what we're going to discover is that actually there were other people who saw this child make his way into the enclosure and there were other adults there who probably could have done something i i think the responsibility i think this is a we're going to discover this is a communal failure not a parental failure right although then we would have to think if you're right why would that be true and this is at least anecdotally something i heard a lot about when i was writing about kids and bullying a couple years ago that there's this sense of a tinderbox out there that if you interfere with someone else's child it could really quickly blow up in your face. You don't know this other parent. You don't know what's going to happen. And is that a norm that has really shifted in the last generation? Why are we feeling atomized and so nervous as parents or as like communities watching out for kids in a way that perhaps we didn't used to? Right. I think it, it points to, you know, some of the Trump resentment and the sense of uh, racial fracturing in this country and the sense that the lost sense of a, a collective experience in a collective community identity and that we're we've all fragmented into our wealth and ethnic and religious groups and 
protect that. But but other people don't belong to us. Other people's problems are not our problems. Or this was just a one-off, incredibly unlikely event that just happened to happen and has no big implications for the rest of society. Yeah, but it was and cool no pictures. one quite it's realized what was going on. Yeah, yeah, no, that's also true. I mean, look, it's awful. And, and you know, I, I go to the Prospect Park Zoo practically every weekend, and I do think zoos are way better than they were when we were kids, and I assume they could be yet better still. But I also look at my son just experiencing nature in a way that I know will last his entire life and probably make him more sensitive, etc. Um, Do you really think that, that, that the memories that you forge at a zoo are memories you keep your whole life of grand nature? No, I'm, I mean, I've led a life of... And how do they translate? Well, exactly. I mean, I've led a life of privilege such that I've been able in my life to go out into nature and see buffaloes at Yellowstone in a way that buffaloes are magnificent at Yellowstone in a way they are not magnificent in the Washington Zoo. None of my memories about nature, about fauna, have anything to do with zoos, except except sorrow, like except the occasions when I've been at zoos and just been really sad at what I see there. And don't forget your panda hatred, please. And my panda hatred. My hunch is your memories are from when you were like 12, not from when you were four. I bet when you were four, it was pretty awesome. And I, I don't know. This is <laughs> I get to make this because I have no counter evidence as a, as a blind assertion. But I would just guess if we did a longitudinal survey of people who had a lot of exposure to urban zoos um, in in their toddler and you know early life, and and looked at their attitudes and interest in nature later in life, I, I would expect they're different. No, obviously that maybe that's because I'm the parent and I'm bringing my kid to the zoo, and and so that child is growing up in a very different home. There'd be you'd have to control the study in all sorts of ways. Sounds like an impossible study can, to conduct. Actually, well, that's why I get to just assert <laughs> it as true without needing any evidence. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. My hunch is just a hunch is that on balance, if we did the math, we would find that zoos are good for animals. Big picture. That's a nice slate pitch. But they're not good for the individual animals who have to be there. Sure. I think that right? probably, my hunch is that depends on the zoo and the species and the handling and all that. Like, I don't think there's a blanket version of that. But I definitely think that mm-hmm. the, pe- okay, the PETA uncomplicated, these are terrible because one gorilla died arguments are w- ridiculous because they only look at one side of the ledger. They don't look at the full ledger. That's all I'm saying. I don't, I even, when my, my youngest was little, we would go to the zoo. I haven't been to the zoo probably in 10 years. Yeah, I really hate the zoo. I don't think I've gone 10 days without going to the zoo in a very long time. Oh, by the way, the one other thing I did want to just say is, if you want to find neglectful parents, don't go to the zoo. That's a parent who's like taking their kid on an enrichment journey. Like right, that, that woman took her kid to the zoo. But um, <laughs> the urban problem in America is not gorillas getting shot. It's not children falling into pits. It is children being raised in unenriched environments, without educational opportunities, without the outdoors, without engaging in the world. And the worst thing that could come out of this is more children don't go to zoos or we judge parents who bring their kids to zoos. Like that, if you look at society as a whole, it might be bad for the odd gorilla. This is this is something we want. We want parents thinking like, hey, today I want to take my kids somewhere and have them experience something and engage in the world in some way. That's really good. And now let's hear from our other sponsor this week, which is Texture. When it comes to magazines, you know what you like. And with Texture, you can get all the magazines you want in one super convenient place. The Texture app lets you tap into the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere, using your smartphone or tablet. Breeze through hundreds of your favorite magazines, including back issues, and pick the articles that interest you the most. Texture has made it easy to find articles you care about. You don't just get to read a magazine like Popular Science or Food and Wine. 
The Texture Editorial Team recommends new content for you every day. Plus, you can dive deeper with personalized collections. Sign up for Texture right now and gain insider access to all the content from the world's best publications. The best part, Texture is offering our listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash political. You'll gain immediate entry to all of the top magazines, including back issues and bonus video content. Try Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com slash political. That's texture.com slash political. Now let's go to cocktail chatter. When you've survived your zoo expedition, I'm Davidson and you're sitting at home with with the little Davidsons and drinking a glass of red wine, as you are wont to do, what are you going to be chattering about? I'm going to be chattering about a new initiative at MIT that I'm super excited about and was just announced yesterday. And it's going to be gathering a bunch of really smart academics and practitioners and workers and to sort of formally present the ideas I was alluding to about ways that companies can both make more money and be good to their shareholders, but also be great to their workers and give their workers decent wages and and a growing career path, etc. It's being run by or being overseen by Thomas Koken, who's an awesome guy at MIT, a business school professor who's been studying labor economics forever, and Barbara Dyer, who was president of the Hitachi Foundation until recently, and I'm going to play some role in it, which I'm excited about, and I think it's going to be awesome. Emily, what do you want to chat about? Well, I was going to chat about a video of Shaquille O'Neal pretending to be a Lyft driver, which is really funny, but, you know, that's too lighthearted for me. So while I do suggest you go find that video, what I wanted to really highlight was the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, you know, that Elizabeth Warren-inspired Obama administration Dodd-Frank creation is really going at it these days. There's this sort of thread running through the news about it. This week, it was about cracking down on payday loans, which truly ruin people's lives. That whole industry is just out to gouge poor people. And the government seems like they're really planning to rein it in. And then a couple weeks ago, the CFPB was going after mandatory arbitration agreements, which prevent consumers and employees from suing companies in court. And mandatory arbitration generally leads to many fewer claims. You can't have collective claims. It's a way of giving companies the upper hand in that kind of litigation. So it's just really interesting to see this agency flex its muscles. It's an agency that Donald Trump, among others, have talked about shutting down with the repeal of Dodd-Frank. And uh, you can see why they're mad about it, because they do seem to be making change. My chatter, I'm going to... It's, a, it's an embarrassing revelation I have to give about myself. So as we've watched Republican after Republican having previously abhorred and deplored Donald Trump make his way over to Donald Trump's camp over the past couple of weeks and, and supply an endorsement for this loathsome and dangerous candidate, there's been a lot of condemnation about how, you know, how could people do this? How could they, uh, how can they be so so cavalier about the the health of American institutions. And then I thought back, and I've, I've engaged that condemnation. Then I thought back to my own uh, experience back in 1990. I don't know if you guys remember this. You were probably in college. But in 1990, I was a college student in Massachusetts, and a Democrat named John Silber won the Democratic primary and was running against 
Republican named Bill Weld, who made the news this week because he's now the Libertarian vice presidential candidate. Uh, Bill Weld, a very moderate um, liberal Republican, one of the last liberal Republicans there was. And, True Yankee Republican. Yeah. And and within our college newspaper, there was a kind of question about who we would endorse. And, and traditionally, our paper had always endorsed the Democrat. And I was a Democrat. And Silber is a bully or was a bully. He's dead. Was a bully. He said crazy stuff all the time. He was a kind of had a real authoritarian personality, was a, a blowhard and, and a bit of a jerk. And I, at this, at this endorsement debate, made this really strong case. Well, he's a Democrat, so he supports democratic policies and it doesn't matter that he's authoritarian. In fact, the state could use a bit more authoritarianism right now. And how could we in, in, endorse this Republican who represents, uh, who represents uh, this party that, that uh, is, is the wicked party? And, and so I was, in the, I was like the Trump supporter. I was the person who, who came around to, I, I backed this, this, this horrible, dangerous candidate for totally partisan reasons. And so I, I, I have, uh, I've swallowed a little bit of my pride and a little bit of my self-righteousness. Although Silber was no Trump. <laughs> Trump is a uniquely awful human I being. I know, right? Silber was not Trump. But, but it was, if you look back, I was just thinking about this and I went and did a little bit of reading. If you look back at the tenor of the debate, the th you know, Silber was saying things that people, at the time, people thought were outrageous. And, and and he hasn't. He had a kind of this dictatorial personality too. It was in much smaller way than yeah. Trump. Yeah, I I'm take the point. I do take was, the point. But but I but I just was a. I certainly, you were making the hack partisan argument. I made the hack partisan argument, and for somebody who who was represented bad values and represented a danger to kind of the the health of the, the state of Massachusetts, and also I, I failed to have the vision to recognize that Bill Weld, although he was at a party, I didn't. I didn't support and don't support was a, you know, a smart, reasonable, effective person and turned out governor. to be a very good governor. It is the job of Trump to so, make us all realize how awful we are in our own hearts. Yes. So I apologize. I apologize to all my. To Bill Weld. All these to Bill Weld and to everybody. The, the paper endorsed Bill Weld and I was a, I was a holdout. Oh, I was wondering if maybe Harvard's endorsement would have actually like, you know, gone, was re reverse psychology. <laughs> <laughs> but you lost your um, no, I battle. Lost. The Don't say the I went to school in Massachusetts thing. Just say Harvard. Own it. Own it. I own it. It was just, it didn't seem, it wasn't relevant. Emily said Harvard. It wasn't relevant for the chatter that it was Harvard. It was. I was closing the circle, Adam, and saving David from exactly that. I don't just, even know where you went to college, Adam. University Emily of Chicago. Went to where else? Yeah. That's right. University yeah, of Chicago. It all makes sense. That's right. We have so we have we have the like the reasonable intellectual in in uh, Emily, and we have uh, the economic intellectual in Adam, and we we have a blowhard asshole in me. We're all conforming <laughs> the to type. Blowhard, yes. <laughs> yeah. Although I I do like the idea of us like in order to purge Trump that we have like a nationwide we all have to confess the trump inside of us the inner trump that we all hold and then release it into the world and then but it doesn't have to be president it could no it no i definitely don't want like bad gas but if it comes if it comes back to you you have to be president yeah right <laughs> <laughs> our interns kevin townsend our producer is jocelyn frank steve lichtai is the executive producer of slate podcasts andy bowers is the chief content officer for panoply the Gaffets is part of the Panoply Network. 
Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. And our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. For Emily Bazelon and our stalwart guest, Adam Davidson of New York Times Magazine and, and the podcast Surprisingly Awesome, uh, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.